Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Eric and Rashi Wiese are my guests today. They're the new hosts of the CBS show Lucky Dog. It airs Saturday mornings on CBS's Dream Team. And they have a really interesting story. I'm so excited for this interview. So Lucky Dog is a show that's been around for a while, but Eric and Rashi are the brand new hosts. They got the call about a year ago, right before this all started, this whole pandemic stuff, to see if they were interested in hosting a show about dog training. They are not TV people. Eric has been training dogs for his entire career. Rashi comes to it from a completely different angle. She studied psychology and sociology and has brought that knowledge over to dog training now. She and Eric first met and fell in love and got married, and then she became part of the business, but was not from a dog training background at all. So the two of them have this show now on CBS, Lucky Dog, and it's just really fascinating to see how they can take rescue dogs, train them to be good dogs for families, and then find them new homes. But the crazy thing, the reason I was really excited to talk to them is they took over this hosting gig right as COVID was starting. Their entire first season working on Lucky Dog was all done under COVID protocols. And you'll hear all about what that process was like. But I also just wanted to talk to them because dogs have been a big topic during this pandemic. A lot of people have been adopting dogs, bringing them into their families during this time. I'll tell you from my own experience, it is something we have strongly considered. And if you know me at all, strongly considered is a, is a huge step. I had dogs growing up, but never really wanted them as an adult. You know, I, I think in my old life, I just traveled too much. I was not home enough. And I liked just the relaxation of being home when I was home and not having to think about walking a dog or, you know, did a dog chew something up or whatever. And I don't know that I knew enough to train the dog either. Now, talking to Eric and Rashi, I have some confidence there. I think there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot you can learn even just from watching them on the show. But yeah, my family and I have gone from the point where we were at probably never having a dog to at least considering. We're looking at different breeds. We're on the list at one breeder, which we're told the list could be up to three years at this point because everyone wants a dog during COVID. So who knows, you know? But yeah. Eric and Rashi, we talk about COVID, we talk about dogs, talk about dog psychology, where it intersects with human psychology. It's a fascinating conversation. Here it is, my conversation with Eric and Rashi Wiese. So I want to start by just asking about, you know, this past year of, you know, this this COVID pandemic period. What's it been like for both of you? It's definitely been interesting. Uh, I, I can imagine for everyone uh in the world right now sure yeah it's it's most certainly had its challenges uh in personal and professional ways but you know we're we're trying to stay positive and and trying to get through it the best we can yeah uh this is your first season working on lucky dog right which and, and it happened all during covid is that right yeah so what covid hit march of last year we were offered the show I think it was February of last year. (laughs) Yeah. So a a month uh, after uh, we were supposed to actually start filming. uh, So that was uh, a very, yeah, interesting timing of it all. But yeah, it actually pushed our production 
to October of the, of last year. Yeah. And you guys shoot all around LA, right? Like there, you weren't getting on planes or anything. It was at least local from that standpoint. Yeah, no, no. It, it, as far as, you know, everything up until a month ago, everything was local. We were supposed to be traveling actually, but we had to push that. Um, and mm. we actually went on our first work travel, I think two weeks ago to Tampa, Florida. Oh, wow. Um, but we're really grateful that we've been able to squeeze that in this season because we weren't sure if that was a possibility. Yeah. Going into this show, had you guys done any production beforehand or was this kind of your first uh, foray into TV? Uh, Rashi's first time. Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually had a little bit of a fear of cameras and production and <laughs> all that. But I also had a fear of dogs once upon a time. And now we are doing a show on dogs and we own a dog resort. We have five rescues of our own. So everyone was really helpful and getting me comfortable and I'm just pushing through and so far so good. Yeah. How did that Rashi work out with your fear of dogs? And <laughs> like when you, when you meet Eric and that's what he does for a living, like how did that, how did that play out? You know, it was just something that when I look back, I think of, it was all about keeping an open mind and uh -huh. open heart. I've gone through a lot of self-exploration uh, prior to meeting Eric, and I was working. I just finished graduate school at USC, um, and I was a social worker at that time, trying to figure out my purpose. And I think meeting Archie and Eric, and I learned a lot about Archie's background and his unfortunate history and how Eric rescued him, rehabilitated him. And it, there were so many parallels to what I studied in social work and how I used to work with you know various populations. Mm. and recognized all the similarities and it, I found it fascinating. You know, I had a, a love for psychology and animal psychology is so fascinating. So just learning everything from Eric and it just really helped me bond with Archie. And I realized this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to work with these types of animals and give them a better life. That's so interesting. I don't know, like, is there academic work or anything out there that sort of draws the parallel between human psychology and dog psychology? Or were you sort of making those connections for yourself? I started making the connections for myself, just going back to Psych 101, when you learn about classical conditioning and Pavlov's theory and sure. being with dogs. Uh, and I think that's when the light bulb went off and I thought, wow, I never put two and two together. Um, I felt kind of silly, but actually working with the dogs and seeing that work up front, uh, yeah. you know, it was pretty fascinating. I'm sure Eric can talk more about kind of the academic side of his work and what he studied and, you know, the degrees that and certifications that people have. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Eric, I'm curious, like, how how did you get into this line of work? Uh, I started very young, actually. I showed an interest uh, in animals at a really young age, as early as I can remember, and wanted to work with dogs pretty much since I was the age of 15, uh, when I was old enough to kind of volunteer uh, at a boarding kennel. Uh, slash rescue. And ever since then, uh, I had been fascinated. You know, when I got old enough to go to uh, college, changed my course of study uh, and studied animal science and then wanted to actually work hands on, not just in a, a clinical sense. And I, I wanted to work, you know, in the field. And so changed again to uh, getting certifications, uh, working with animals rather than taking the formal education route. And so, you know, had to 
submit case studies and, you know, you have to have a certain amount of hours. I'm a member of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. So a lot of my work that I was doing, too, was consulting for veterinary practices, training uh, vets, vet techs, veterinary assistants on how to properly and humanely handle animals. Yeah. I'm so fascinated just watching you work. Like, you know, in some of the episodes I've seen of Lucky Dog, like you'll go meet a rescue dog and I can just see that click between you and the dog right away. Like there's just, there's something about the way you present that the dog is, is sort of instantly put to ease. And I wonder like, is that something that you can teach other people (laughs) to do? Because I don't always have that effect on dogs, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's, there are certain ways to greet dogs, uh, maybe that the general public doesn't know. So, you know, very similar to even you speaking to a stranger, for instance. So take note of your body language and what you naturally do so we usually don't square off to each other when we speak Hmm. uh, especially to a stranger like you don't face someone head-on you're always facing a little at an angle so watch people you know in a a public gathering whenever we're able to do those again and watch them converse and and how they're speaking rarely do you get someone you know squared off shoulder to shoulder uh, and you're directly facing somebody it's always tilted to the side to be less threatening Hmm. uh seem less threatening. And so when we meet dogs, a lot of people go straight up uh, and try to greet them where they actually should maybe turn to the side just a little bit. And those subtle body cues uh, and body language actually gives the dog a a little bit more perception on what you want out of this greeting. And you allow them to uh, become a little bit more comfortable uh, when greeting a human and allowing them to sniff you and, and stuff like that. There's a lot too that we you know, are unable to fit into a 22 minute segment on, you know, me acclimating myself to uh, a dog and, and what goes into that. But yeah, that that's the start of it is just, you know, making sure that your body language is, you know, least amount of threat as possible to them to make them feel a little bit more comfortable. What's sort of the relationship, like, you know, dogs have been domesticated for thousands of years now, but Mm -hmm. like at their heart, they're a wild animal, I guess, right? I mean, like the relatives of, of wolves and coyotes and things like that. Like how much is that sort of baked in DNA playing into either how they're perceiving you or how you present to them? Well, so, you know, it's it's not an identical comparison, but I'll give you a similar comparison. You know, our DNA is very similar to a chimpanzee, for mm, instance, sure. but we're very, very different. Uh, if you look at us and our, our instincts uh, can be very different too, considering the world that we're exposed to compared to one of a chimpanzee, uh, us also being verbal uh, and a chimpanzee not being verbal. So that's how I would compare a dog, a domesticated dog to a wolf. So even though there's that DNA, uh, they're still very different animals. And, you know, dogs are one of the only species that have been domesticated uh, to live with humans uh, and coexist Uh, that, but to actually work for humans. And, you know, there's not another animal out there that's been worked with for so long to work for humans. So it's a little bit different when when we compare, you know, dogs to wolves. Uh, Wolves, yes, are are very wild animals and, and should not be kept as pets. But because of the tens of thousands of years uh, that we've been domesticating dogs, they have a much easier time than a wolf would acclimating mm. to our environment. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I guess it is, you know, we are 
very similar on paper from a chimpanzee, but very different <laughs> practically. Yeah. So that, that doesn't yeah, make yeah, sense. Yeah. If, if, if you look at like our, yeah, our DNA workup, uh, it can seem very similar. Right. And, and to the layman, it can almost be impossible to you know, recognize those subtle differences. But yeah, if you look at us in real time, it, yeah, very different. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm curious too, and maybe Rasha, you know some of this or, or Eric, either one, I guess, but like for humans, there's so many different ways that we perceive information and communicate with each other. You know, there are, there are visual learners, there are oral learners, there are people that just need to read something to, to, you know, take it in. But when I watch you training a dog, it seems like they're a kind of universal thing. Like I, there's never a moment that I've seen anyways, where you're trying something, you're like, you know what, this just isn't working. Like, let me try two other approaches and sort of see if this is what this individual dog reacts to. Is that, is that right? Like do dogs sort of, when you're training them, is it the same process each time? In general terms, it's the same process. So dogs in general learn the same way, unless we're dealing with an impediment, like a loss of smell or hearing or sight. Uh So dogs will take in the world through their noses first, then they see something, then they hear something. So if you know how they learn, you can then adapt it to how we teach them. Mm. So first, you know, if they learn through their noses, we would then lure them with, you know, something of value, like a treat into a position that we want or to get them to do something that we would want. We would first lure with that treat. Then we would morph that, you know, lure into a hand signal. So then they you know, use their sight to process the information. And then the last thing would be naming what we actually want them to do, whether it's to sit down or lie down or something like that. Uh, we would, you know, name it because they're not a verbal species. So mm-hmm. anything that comes out of our mouth in the beginning can actually confuse them. So not too dissimilar from us learning a different language. Uh, If anyone's had any experience with, you know, using an app to learn a language, and sometimes those apps don't even utilize the translation, meaning they're not, if you speak English, they're not utilizing English uh, in teaching you. They just show you a picture and then they name it. Right. Uh, but they give context to it. And so similar on how our dogs are learning, we first have to give context to what we want them to do, knowing how they learn. And then we can name it something because that verbal cue is really just for us to bridge that communication. Interesting. I mean, it is. It's what Rashi was saying about Pavlov. Like it, it literally is conditioning 101, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of backtracking on what Eric was saying, even, although the dog's you know, seem to have this universal process for the most part. I have noticed with the different dogs that we have rescued, you know, each dog has their own story and some come from abuse and trauma, some, you know, you just don't know. And I think that's where it's so important, especially in the beginning, is to try to give that time to bond with the dog and build trust. Because sometimes you can't teach a dog something right away if they don't trust you and they you know, won't even come to you. So that's also been a big process. And again, another similarity to humans, you know, you think of foster children or even when you're developing a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, like trust is so important. And we never want to use tactics that instill fear. We're psychologically intimidating or physically hurting the dog. So there are just so, so so many similarities. You could probably see why it's so fascinating to me. Um, the only thing is that dogs don't have a voice. And so I think we're just trying to help be their voice and try to work with them each on an individual case uh, the best we can. Yeah. I mean, in those situations where there is trauma of some kind or abuse or things like that, I mean, a lot of the dogs you work with are rescue dogs, right? And like, mm-hmm. just like, what is that process? Like to figure out 
that backstory, I guess, and you know what the triggers are, I guess, that are going to upset that dog? Yeah, that's a good question. So one of the first things that we do is we'll get the dog into an enclosed yard, but a larger space. So we use our training yard for this. And, you know, once we've rescued the dog and let's say we get a little bit of a backstory on, you know, what the dog may have gone through. And of course, it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly, you know, all of the things that a dog has been through, but sure. some be telltale signs. And we'll get the dog into our environment. And the first part of building trust is ignoring the dog. And I know that sounds really weird. As a human, you just want to give so much compassion to these animals, especially if you you know that they've gone through some sort of trauma. But the best thing to do is first ignore, let the dog acclimate to the environment for a little bit, let them sniff around and let them approach you. You know, the last thing you want to do is approach a dog. Uh, it You know, again, like a stranger approaching you and trying to touch you, it, it'd be just as weird for a dog. Right. So realize that we think dogs are, you know, just innately wanting us to give them physical praise. Yeah. And if you're a stranger to that dog, they don't necessarily want that, especially if they've been through some form of trauma uh, or they don't trust humans. So, you know, a lot of that is just giving them space uh, and letting them approach you to break that touch barrier. So letting a dog come up and sniff you and maybe touch their nose to your hand or arm. And they're letting you know that, hey, uh, I don't mind uh, being touched rather than you reaching out towards them, which can easily break trust. Yeah. That that process of ignoring, though, I mean, is it literally like, you know, looking the other way or, or is there some yeah, eye contact I and just like, hey, I'm here? When you're ready. Yeah, it, it can be different for uh, every dog, but typically in, in general terms, I'll just keep walking away from them. And if, if they're following me, I, I know that they have an interest. And if they continuously follow me, I'll actually stop and I'll crouch down to their level, but mm. facing away from them. So I'm not squared off and allowing the dog to come up and sniff me. And, you know, a, a lot of times, too, and this sounds really weird, but I'll actually chew gum. Hmm. Because if I'm occupied chewing something and I'm not looking at them, that means that I'm less of a threat. So, you know, let's say you see someone eating uh, at a table. The last thing you're usually going to think is that they're a threat to you. Right. So, you know, when animals act the same way, if they're occupied with something else uh, or I'll take a toy and I'll kind of, you know, run it through my fingers or kind of, you know, move it from hand to hand just to let the dog know that I'm occupied with something else and not necessarily interested in them. So it gives them more permission to come up and sniff me. I've also seen Eric yawn in front of the dog. Um, yeah. So that's been interesting. <laughs> Is that Eric like a sign of disinterest or something? Yawning for a dog and, and they do it uh, for a couple of different reasons. It can be releasing tension. So you'll, you'll see like a little bit of a head tremor, like a shake uh -huh. and a sigh. And humans will do that as well. Or you'll see a yawn with no head tremor, no sigh, and it's a calming signal. And they're letting you know that they're calm and that you can come up and investigate them. So I'll do the same thing. And, and it's really interesting. You know how yawns can be contagious with humans? Sure. And it's a sign of maybe showing empathy. Uh, dogs react in the same way. So if you yawn, it's interesting to see a dog yawn. So when you do that, you can actually start to calm a dog down. It's so fascinating. Is Like how much of this have you just sort of had to learn by doing and how much, um, you know, have you been sort of trained, I guess, to, to look for these things? Uh, most of it comes from text and learning from seminars and, you know, shadowing. And, you know, I, I haven't shadowed in such a long time, but when I was going through uh, certain things uh, during my education, uh, we were, you know, making sure that, you know, when you are shadowing, 
you know, your mentors that you're picking up on those subtle uh, changes in their body language. And then what you're doing is you're, you're taking notes during a session when you're shadowing. And then at the end of the session, you're asking all of those questions. And then your mentor, if they're a great mentor, they'll answer those questions. And so a lot of it comes from that. Most of it comes from just field work, though, yeah. when you're uh, applying these techniques. So you can only learn so much from text. So you'll get the gist of it from uh, reading and watching videos uh, and virtual seminars. But you know, you'll get a lot of it, too, from actually doing field work. Um, but, yeah, the, the yawning and stuff, we, we know all these things. Sometimes we just don't know how to apply it. Yeah. And so a lot of trainers can run into those issues on when to actually apply these techniques. But once you start to learn how to utilize them and at the right moment, uh, it becomes an invaluable tool. Yeah, it must just click and you're like, oh, this is I'm going to yeah. do this again. Yeah, that's so cool. And I guess it's like, you know, it, it's just a world that I don't understand like of course you would have training you know it's like a heart surgeon or something like sure it's fascinating to me from the outside but you know to the heart surgeon that's something he's doing every day so it's like yeah yeah it's just my job um looking at the pandemic and you know i feel like one of the big trends uh, over this past year has been people bringing dogs into their families and i wonder why that is why why do we find such comfort in dogs do you think well i you know i think a lot of times you know, people, especially during these times of the pandemic, are feeling lonely because especially if you're a single person or you're not living with family and you're just alone and you can't spend time with humans, a, a dog or a, a cat would be the next best thing to try to subsidize some of that loneliness. And dogs have an innate ability to give humans comfort. And that's why they're, you know, a lot of dogs are allowed into hospitals for comfort or cancer wards just because uh, they can be such a calming presence. And I think a lot of it is because they're not judgmental. Mm. Whatever type of person you may be, as long as you're not showing malicious behavior towards the dog, the dog will try to befriend you as again, as long as there's that trust and bond formed uh, or if the dog is trained to try to form bonds with humans like service dogs or therapy dogs. So, yeah, and you know, a dog is, is can be with you. And, you know, if you work from home during the pandemic, the dog is just by your side where you maybe you would normally want a human companion, uh, the dog takes that place. Yeah. Well, I know even in my family, you know, we've resisted. I've got a almost eight and five year old now and, uh, the kids want a dog terribly, but we've resisted for a long time in part just because, you know, we had a busy lifestyle and, you know, traveled a lot. And my wife and I have been looking at it lately and saying, OK, you know, realistically, we haven't been on a plane in 13 months. It's probably going to be a long time before, you know, we're back to that. Like, maybe this is the right time. And, you know, you probably get a version of this question a lot. But like two young kids, a smaller house, but a decent sized yard. Like, what are some good breeds that we should be considering? Well, it really, it doesn't just depend on your environment. Obviously, environment is a big part of that, but it depends on your lifestyle. And, you know, do you like to be active? Do you like to go out and hike? Would you like to go on longer walks or shorter walks with your dog? Or do mm. you have the time to go on a longer walk? What type, you know, of environment do you live in? Do you have stairs? Do you have, you know, central AC and heating? Do you not? You know, a lot of people in Southern California don't have central AC and heating, but it can be sometimes too hot for, let's say, a husky. Mm. So it really just depends on, you know, the environment you have, uh, how active you want to be uh, with a particular dog. And then we can slowly start to, 
you know, discover what type of, uh, of dog or what breed would best suit your lifestyle and, and what dog you, know, you would suit. So yeah. it goes both ways. I mean, some of that active stuff, like I, I totally get, but like I would have never thought to consider like stairs or you yeah. know, the heating and, and cooling and things like that. Like, is there is there a website you use or something like when you're when you have all that criteria in mind or like how do you how do you begin to to make that funnel smaller i guess well yeah there's not a way i mean we do it with our company so people will actually reach out to us uh and you know we help with pairing dogs to humans and humans to dogs uh, and that's uh, i think a lot of the the lure of you know the production company was that we were already doing this hmm. uh the production company approached us to uh take over uh, the next season of lucky dog so you know we had already had our hands in this already and so it, it was kind of a seamless fit so to speak uh at least the, you know the general foundation was um similar to what the show was already doing so you know it, it's hard i think to find an exact website to do that what can help is you know going through a rescue normally you know we would always 100 percent say go to the shelters the only thing is during the pandemic um, a lot of the shelters have been closed to the public mm. which normally you could go in person and look at the dogs that they have available ask questions about their behavior and any medical issues and that can help you narrow it down and the staff is usually very helpful but in this case with the pandemic they have been doing blind adoptions where you commit to the dog and then you get the dog so at this moment i wouldn't necessarily recommend going to a shelter if you're you haven't had a dog in a long time but rescues have an application where they ask the right questions and mm. can help the right dog. So that can be really helpful um, for people that are in your position trying to find out, you know, what kind of breed, size and lifestyle and how to match that. Um, so hopefully, you know, we hope that that's the route you guys take. But we also understand that people who do end up going back to work and kids are going back to school when schedules return back to normal. Um, that's been also our, our concern with a lot of the people that have been adopting. I love that the dogs are being adopted, um, but we've also been hearing about dogs being returned um, mm -hmm. to the shop. So that's, I think, another thing we'll be dealing with as things get back to normal. Yeah, I think you're the, unfortunately, a lot of dogs being returned just because you'll see some separation anxiety start to form because, you know, you're with your dog you know, 24 seven because you're working from home. And then all of a sudden you go back to a nine to five job or something like that. And this dog is not, you know, used to that schedule and, and dogs are creatures of habit. They, they don't like necessarily surprises unless they're really good surprises, uh, like offering them treats, uh, at different times of the day. But yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, the statistics come out on, how many dogs are being returned to the shelter as opposed to how many dogs were actually adopted out. Yeah. That's a, that's a frightening thing I hadn't really thought about, but that's uh yeah. yeah, it makes you think. I'm wondering too, like from a, you know, shelter uh, standpoint, but also like going direct to a breeder or, you know, pet stores or things like that. Like is, is any dog that you adopt uh, able to be turned into a good pet or are there certain types of dogs or, you know, certain backgrounds or something that you should, you should avoid or certain ones you should lean into? Well, uh, you know, when you're talking about like, let's say a service dog, I, I would highly recommend, uh, going to an, you know, an accredited service organization. Mm -hmm. You're getting the bloodline of the dog that, you know, was actually bred to uh, perform specific services for people. Uh, it's it's just too dangerous to try to turn a dog into a service dog, sure. in, in my opinion. 
that hasn't actually been bred uh, and you know the bloodline of that specific breed and dog uh, to perform that specific service. It's not that it can't be done. It's just, in my opinion, very risky. But yeah, you can always go to breeders if you're looking for a, a specific dog. That being said, you know, we've found wonderful dogs both in the shelter and with breeders. So uh, it's a risk either way you put it, whether you're adopting from the shelter or getting from a breeder, because a lot of times if you go to a breeder, maybe the dog has come from severe inbreeding and you mm. can get neurological issues. Or if you're getting a dog from a shelter, they could have gone through a, a bunch of trauma that uh, creates reactive behavior. And then you're putting yourself in that uh, dangerous situation. So there are always going to be risks. But that's why, you know, we're hopefully uh, going to change people's minds as far as asking themselves the question, you know, what type of dog are they looking for? What lifestyle do they have? And then doing some research on specific breeds uh, that could potentially fit their lifestyle and vice versa. And also um, doing your research on the rescue organization, because a lot of people will call themselves a rescue, but they're actually getting dogs from puppy mills um, and rescuing them. Um, Or if you think you're going to a breeder, do some background research and see are there reviews and are they allowing you to meet the dog and potentially the parents um, or are they only sending you a picture? Not to overwhelm you, but there are, um, you know, some shady things going on because it's not very much a regulated industry right now. Yeah. Um, so just making sure that you try to do some background research and, you know, look online and just make sure they're valid organizations. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, like you would with anything, <laughs> you know, check reviews and make sure it's legit. Yeah. I- a lot of people go through Craigslist in hopes of finding a dog and, you know, in the description will say rescue, you know, adopt a dog. And you don't necessarily know where that dog's coming from. And, you know, people who are first time dog owners don't know that they think they're doing a good thing. Right. But in fact, it might be perpetuating. Yeah. Craigslist is kind of the virtual kind of backyard uh, breeder situation. So we, we try to steer people away from getting dogs from Craigslist. But uh, if you just venture out, uh, on the web and, and search for rescue organizations. And you can actually type in specific breeds because there are specific breeds that have rescues dedicated to them. So you can typically find whatever breed you're looking for uh, that came from, whether it was a shelter um, or it was an owner surrender, but you can actually seek out uh, specific breeds. Yeah. I mean, I think of uh, things like, like pit bulls or uh, greyhounds or things like that in that scenario. Like are there things you should be concerned about with with breeds like that, uh, you know, that may have been used for for racing or, you know, guarding a property or something like that? Yeah, you definitely want to take into consideration uh, what breed specific traits there are. So, you know, whether it be pit bulls, German shepherds, you know, uh, breeds that are very stigmatized, it doesn't mean that they're going to display the behaviors that they're stigmatized for. But you definitely want to assess or have a professional assess the temperament of the particular dog that you're looking for. So, I mean, the the most bites that we see are from little dogs, so whether it be a mm. chihuahua or something like that, because but they're not reported because they don't cause typically as much damage as a larger breed would. So it's not to say that, you know, all dogs, uh, you know, don't bite. Um, and it's just these, you know, specific breeds that are stigmatized. You know, we actually see bites from every type of breed, but it's usually provoked in some way. Uh, it's not just out of the blue. Some, something happened and that, you know, that dog was triggered to bite uh, in some form. So it's just, again, knowing uh, the breed that you're getting, having the dog professionally assessed, whether it be by a rescue or you hiring a professional to do so. And then just making sure that it, again, fits your lifestyle and vice versa. Yeah. 
Uh, going back to training for a minute too, I'm curious, like when you're, you know, in a dog park or, you know, out walking around, things like that. Are there things that you see that owners do just so poorly? Like, is there like one thing that you're, is like a pet peeve that you're just like, man, I wish people would stop doing this thing and just do this instead. <laughs> yeah, all, all the time. I mean, I, I could probably, have a list. this could be an hour, <laughs> another hour. But I would say the, the one that is the biggest pet peeve would be uh, pet parents repeating themselves uh, in a very stern manner. So if a dog is, is asked to sit uh, and the dog doesn't sit, they'll continue to raise their voice like the dog didn't hear them. Mm. And they'll continue to kind of yell that sit until the dog sits. And what's interesting with that is if you cue a dog to do something and they don't do it, you're either in too distracting of an environment, they don't know it, or you're interrupting their thought process. Meaning, if I were to ask you, and you don't have to answer this, this is just more for a fact, if I were to ask you what's 122 times 12, and I kept repeating that, what's 122 times 12, what's 122 times 12, I don't actually allow your brain to process that. Right. And so by me repeating it, I'm interrupting your thought process. And that's exactly what happens to our dogs. Yeah. It's not unlike when you talk to someone that speaks a foreign language and they don't understand you because they literally don't know the words that you're saying. And <laughs> no, so you, exactly. you raise the, the the tone of your voice and say, no, I'm wondering where are the towels and they're in like, this you store? Can yell it to me as, as much as you want yeah. in the same way, but I still don't understand what right. you're, what you're saying to me. Or again, you're distracted. You know, let's say you're in a busy area and someone's trying to get your attention or like a, a child's trying to get your attention. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times as a parent, and this is just human nature, a child be like, mom, mom, mom. And all of a sudden they just start to teach you to ignore them because you know that maybe their question may not be valid at that point because you're trying to you know, find out where you're supposed to go or what street you're supposed to cross. Right. So that's another thing is, you know, people can actually teach their dogs to ignore them because they just keep repeating themselves. <laughs> yeah. It, it's conditioning again, I guess. Yeah. So, so funny. Yeah. I have two, Eric, you can pick which one is more important. Sure. One is uh, forced greetings with dogs, mm. like dogs that don't know each other. And the other is retractable leashes. Yeah. Mm. Those are good too. Yeah. Ret retractable leashes are Probably, you know, with the exception of like electric collars and, and pinch collars, one of the worst pieces of equipment that have come into our world oh. uh, working animals, just because the, uh, you're teaching a dog to pull on leash. They're trying to get more and more uh, space from you. And then what happens if something comes into your environment like eight feet away from you? How do you get that dog back to you that's right. pulling away from you? Um, and then also those leashes, every time they spool, they weaken because there's friction that's mm. uh, created. And they spool and then they eventually break. So that's actually how a lot of people lose their dogs, unfortunately. Oh, wow. I, I had no idea. I mean, that's growing up. That's what we had for our dogs. So now I know. Yeah, that's... no. And, and, and a, a great uh, portion of the population still uses them. But there's legislation passed that they actually have to put warnings now on the back of those retractable leashes because they've actually, unfortunately, un amputated a finger or a dog's leg because they got wrapped Ooh. around it. Oh, wow. Um, well, I want to ask a little more on the production side, too, because I am curious, like you mentioned Lucky Dog, um, you know, you guys came into it and it was it was an existing entity already. There was another host and it had been going for a number of years. Like, how aware were you of the show going into it? Is it something you, you had seen or was it like a complete out of the blue thing? <laughs> to be honest, completely out of the blue. Uh, we had never seen one episode of the show. Uh, and that's not to say anything about the previous show. 
we just didn't have time to watch TV in general. Sure. So we were constantly working. We were, you know, in and out of shelters, working privately with vets. It's a very early show on Saturday morning. So we usually <laughs> sleeping. Well, either, yeah, either sleeping in or we were out rotating, you know, dogs for play and training. And so it, it was never something that was really on our radar, but no dog show was really on our radar. Sure. So not to say anything about any dog show. We just, yeah, we d- obviously, honestly just didn't watch TV. So we just didn't know uh, what was out there. And so when we were approached for the show, we, we had to binge watch uh, and make sure this was something that we were able to take on. That's what I was curious was like, if when you heard about it, were you like, okay, I've got to research this or was it like, you know, out of sight, out of mind? And like, I, I guess by binging it, did that, did it get in your head at all? Sort of like what the old format was or the way the old host had approached it or like, you know, how were you able to sort of bring your own take to it? Well, you know, there was a lot of discussions with production on the take that we had to bring, not necessarily what we wanted to bring because uh, I'm a member of an organization that specializes in positive reinforcement only. I couldn't use maybe some of the tactics that were used on the, the previous show. So it was just making sure that, you know, we could utilize uh, our training methods that, you know, we were accredited to use and in hopes that, you know, they would you know follow suit. And the production company couldn't have been more helpful in that transition. So they, they were really on board with taking a, a kind of a different approach to the show uh, and, and allowing us to uh, make it our own. Yeah. How aware are you of the audience when you're shooting a segment and maybe not just the general audience, but, you know, in particular, like other dog trainers or professional organizations Mm -hmm. or things like that? Like, are you constantly kind of checking yourself just like, wait, did I did I say that right? Yeah, no, no, no. uh, That's correct. So we have to, uh, you know, per uh, the organization that I belong to, Mm. I have to make sure. So, you know, we look at all of the edits to the show Okay. and before they're actually aired, you know, Rashi and I actually sit down, take notes and making sure that, you know, everything that's shown is shown in in a light that demonstrates uh, the positive reinforcement that we're utilizing and making sure that, you know, there's not an edit that, you know, skips a step uh, in something where like, oh, I don't know if they utilize that correctly. But, you know, we, we did a podcast not too long ago where uh, the people that I was talking to were all accredited professional trainers. So they belong to CBDT, which is a certified professional trainer, uh, as well as some applied behaviorists, you know, board certified by medical boards. And, you know, I was telling them, listen, if, if there's anything that you guys ever see, please reach out to us directly through our website and just shoot us an email saying, hey, we didn't really understand this method because I have to continue my education yeah. uh, in order to uphold my certification, much like a doctor would. And, you know, science is constantly changing. So if there's a better method out there that makes a dog feel even more comfortable while we're training them, I'm all for it. Yeah. That's that's great. I mean, it's it, it is important, I guess, to be thorough. And I I know you know I worked at this old house for a million years before I uh, started this thing. And mm-hmm. yeah, like you get you know home inspectors watching and just you know people that you wouldn't even think about OSHA that you know you've always sort of got to be cognizant of like even if in normal life you might not wear safety glasses for this particular tool, maybe we should yeah. put them on just to, you know to be extra safe and you know make sure that we're showing everyone you know, 110% and not just, you know, yeah. 95% or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you're, you're hundred percent correct. There is, is we constantly have to make sure that, 
you know, we're being as responsible as we possibly can uh, while showing these methods and techniques to the public. Yeah. Well, I want to wrap up on just sort of talking about this last season and, you know, working during COVID times, like what were some of the challenges of just making the show? And I know you you don't have a lot to compare it to, you know, this was the first season you did it, but like, what was it like just being on set, you know, day in, day out? Well, you know, just making sure that we're taking as many safety protocols as we can, you know, being masked up, uh, we're, you know, getting COVID tested uh, each week. And uh, it's been really challenging, uh, just in a sense of getting locations, Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. the parks were closed for a while here in Southern California, so we couldn't shoot in parks. The shelters, like Rashi mentioned earlier, were closed and are still closed where you have to call in to try to make appointments. And, you know, we have I don't know, 10 million people. uh, It seems like they're calling in. A great problem. But for the show, uh, trying to get dogs and, you know, for the families that are applying, that made it a little bit more challenging than past seasons, uh, for sure. So it's been interesting. Luckily, we do have a a rescue foundation um, that's made it a little bit more helpful for us to be able to get dogs. But it, it took some trial and error to figure that out. Yeah, and 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 also too, we're we're building uh, a space right now for the dogs, and that got put on hold because the uh, county permitting office closed down. Mm. Just trying to get permits to continue our building uh, were delayed. So yeah, we we definitely ran into a lot of obstacles, but you know, we we at the end of all of that, we feel very fortunate the position that we're in uh, that we get to help. Uh, many more dogs than we may have not been able to without the show. So, you know, and have that financial backing to actually get more dogs out of the shelter has been incredible. Yeah. And to have the impact on the viewers too. And just, you know, I, I yeah. learned 10 things in this conversation that were really valuable. Sure. So it's uh, it's great. I'm glad you guys are doing it. Yeah, no. I, and uh, we appreciate your time and we, we appreciate you having us on to, to get that message out there and maybe in a little bit more detail. All right. Eric and Rashi Weesey. That was interesting. There's a lot there. I, I never knew any of that stuff about how to train a dog or how they learn. Or I'm just, I'm fascinated by the work that they both do. And as I told Eric there, like it's probably everyday stuff for him and he's learned it and he's used to it. But for somebody who's never thought about it before, it is cool stuff. Lucky Dog airs Saturday mornings on CBS. It's part of CBS's Dream Team. Check your local listings for more information there. It's a good show. I've learned a lot from it. And they made this past season during COVID, which is pretty wild. Pretty cool. Go check it out. All right. If you are not on my mailing list yet, go to heathrasella.com. Enter your email address. You will get the newsletter delivered every Sunday to your inbox. I summarize every week's show. So if you missed anything, you have a chance to read the highlights and, you know, figure out if there's a show that you want to go back and listen to. That's always fun. And I have new episodes every Thursday here in your favorite podcast player. So hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, leave a review, all that good stuff. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. I will talk to you guys next Thursday. Go get that vaccine. Stay safe.